Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile. Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And you never know who I'm going to run into or who I'm going to find. And here I was watching Dr. Phil this week, and I saw this amazing guest that I want to tell you about, and I hope I say your name right. I want to introduce you to Scott Augenbaum. After joining the FBI in the New York field office in 1988 as a support employee, Scott became a special agent in 1994 and was, and was assigned to the Syracuse, New York City office, where he worked domestic terrorism, white collar and hate crimes, and all computer crime investigations. In October of 2003, Agent Scott was promoted to Supervisory Special Agent at FBI Headquarters, Washington, D.C., in the Cyber Division Cybercrime Fraud Unit, and was responsible for managing the FBI's Cyber Task Force Program and Intellectual Property Rights Program. To say I'm excited to interview Scott is an understatement. This is a really deep-seated and personal topic for me when I used to case manage. So without further ado, Scott, welcome to the show. Deb, thank you so much for having me uh, today. I feel even in the brief time we talked, we absolutely connected. But every time somebody reads my bio, I just, I get humbled all the time because if you would have told me that 33 years ago, this would have been my life. I would have said, no way. So it is such a privilege to be here. I read a little bit about what you do, and I just admire people like yourself and what you do. Well, it's exciting to talk to an FBI agent who's now consulting and training, and you've written a book. And I want to say to people, you know, if you take anything away from today's podcast, never be afraid to reach out to another person and make a connection because that's what I did. And two days later, here we are on the podcast. So I'm so humbled to have you here. I have four leadership questions for you. I may sneak in kind of a part two on some of them because this is going to be a rich conversation. So I want to drop a couple stats here and then I'm going to lead into my first leadership question. But How many people really sit and think about digital technology? And I'm going to put it under the umbrella of nonverbal communication. In North America, so Canada, where I am, and the U.S., where you are, Scott, 6 billion text messages were sent in 2020 per day. 306 billion emails were sent and received every day. And this number is expected to exceed 361 billion by the year 2024. So my first question for you around leadership and your expertise is how can we stay safe as citizens in a digitally connected world? Well, there's so much. I mean, let's think about it today, how communication has changed. 
And in order really to answer that, we just have to realize a couple of things. The cyber criminal, the criminal elements, they go where the victims are, where the people are, and where are they now? Everybody's on the internet. Everybody's on cell phones. We're all communicating differently than we did. And like you, you hit it right on the head. It's not about being in person anymore. It's not about being on the telephone. It's through email. It's through text messages. And the one thing that I have to really emphasize the most is email is the number one attack vector. And you're going to get an email, not from Boris Badnoff at cybercriminal.org. I want you to think about this. You're going to get an email from somebody you know and somebody you trust. It might even be, you know, one of your clients and your client is going to send you and say, hey, you owe them some money and they're going to send you what you believe is an invoice. And they're going to say, hey, just want to let you know, Deb, I just changed my bank account. Instead of banking at uh, RBC, I'm banking at the Bank of Scotia Bank. Hey, do me a favor. Just, you know, from now on, just put that little note in the file over here. And Deb, what do most people do when they get an email from somebody they know and somebody they trust and they tell them to do something? What do most people do now? They're going to open it. They're going to click on it. They're going to do it. So I want people to realize you need to think before you click. You need to become a human firewall. You, you need to examine everything. And during our conversation today, we're going to really drill down deep into this because I want to share with your audience what I've learned during my 30 years with the FBI. And I'm telling you, you're going to be quite surprised on some of the statistics that I'm going to give you today. Well, there's no doubt in my mind. I just want to add a little bit extra to that question. What have you seen that you're able to share with us or has there been further impact on my first question with the global pandemic. Oh, absolutely. Well, let me just stop and, and, and go through this. In According to Cybersecurity Ventures, which is a great source that I use all the time, the cybercrime problem, the global cost of cybercrime in 2015 was a $3 trillion problem. That's the cost, the economic impact around the globe. And by 2021, it went up to a $6 trillion problem. That's a 100% increase. And that was before COVID-19 came along. And what happened in COVID-19, everybody had to work from home. Businesses were turned on their head because now everyone was spinning things up and they were putting information into the cloud. What does that mean? Couldn't get to your office. You had to make all your information available. So you put it into one of the cloud providers. Everybody was throwing it up. And then there was probably one of the biggest myths. Hey, it's in the cloud. It's safe. Well, when you put things in the cloud, they are kind of safe. However, the bad guys were not hacking clouds. They were hacking the end users by sending them emails. So imagine this, Deb, for a second. You work at an organization. And, and I'm going to give you tips to prevent all this from happening because I do want to warn you, I do paint it pretty much a doom and gloom picture at first. That's why you're going to have to listen to the whole episode here with us. Because imagine this, you work at an organization and the organization sends you, you get an, an email from your HR director that says, just want to let you know 
that uh, because of what's going on, we need you to do a password reset right now. So click on the link. So the person clicks on the link and they go what looks to be the company webpage. And it says, please enter in your old password and your new password and verify. And unfortunately, what do people do? They enter it in. Now, bad guy steals username and password and logs in remotely into the cloud-based service provider. And now they're able to extract that. And a lot of the organizations don't realize what is the cloud. It's your human resources platform for your organization. It's your payroll platform. It's your email. It's your social media. And I developed kind of a methodology, which I'm going to talk about, that really gets people. And I like to use frameworks because that's what we need to do. We have to start thinking from the beginning to the end on how we do these things. Well, you make such a great point. Companies go to great strides and spend a lot of money to protect their intellectual property. And well, you just... The, and Deb, here's the point about that, because it leads into the second thing. Okay. So the cybercrime problem is going up. And now I'm going to be interviewing you because I want to ask you to fix to handle the rest of this equation. So we already talked about the cybercrime problems going from a $3 trillion problem to a $6 trillion problem. We realized that. However, in 2015, we were spending, meaning the global economy, was spending $88 billion on information security products, hardware, software, all these different types of things, insurance, regulatory compliance. And by 2021, the same time period, cumulatively, it was going up to a trillion dollars. So let me ask you a question, okay? What does it mean if the total cost of cybercrime increases 100% over five years and the amount of money that we spend increases almost at the same rate? What does that mean to you? It means that people are trying to put infrastructure in place, but the crime rate's two to one and there's, there's more smart strategic happenings amongst hackers that I don't think companies are always thinking about in their solutions for overall security. Well, I'm going to put it in the best, you know, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, so I'm <laughs> going to put it in the best terms, Deb. You know what it means to me? We're not doing it right. Exactly. Okay? Because when I go out and I do my presentations, you know what the title of my presentation is? how to reduce your chances of becoming the next cybercrime victim without spending money and without being technical. Now, let me give you a disclaimer. If you want to avoid all cybercrime risk completely, I have a really, really great way to do it. You can get a copy of my book, which is a hardcover, and you can take it and you can slam it at your laptop and <laughs> it, and then you have no issues. <laughs> but the thing that drives me crazy about this is during my career, almost 90% of what I dealt with could have easily been prevented mm -hmm. if, the, uh, if the end users were just empowered with a couple of key pieces of information. That's what drives me, Deb. That's what drives me to do what I do. 
Well, it's, it's fun because you're taking decades of experience and now you're putting tools in their toolkit to give them more business acumen that they need, which is amazing. So my second leadership question, all of my guests get, and it derives from the name of the podcast, Imperfect. Share with us what imperfections you bring to being a heart-centered leader. How long is our podcast? <laughs> it's, it's the biggest comment I hear. So share with us your, your top two or three. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, the thing that really gets to me is I find that I'm always in presenter mode. I find that I'm like, hey, Deb, let me tell you a little bit about what we have going on over here. De- Deb, you need to do this. You need to do this. And in the FBI, I was uh, an employee assistance program counselor for 20 years. I, was, I went to the FBI's crisis negotiation school. I volunteered time on a crisis hotline. And what did I learn in all this? I learned active listening skills. And what do I not do most of the time? I don't use them. I hate to say it. I'm so much, you know, I I wish I could tattoo something on my wrist that says, stop, listen better. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is, but when you get paid and you make your living as, and what do I want to be? I want to be like the Anthony Robbins of cyber, you know, tall, obnoxious, and yelling all the time. It's hard to be able to do that where I just feel that I have so much information and I want to get it out and I want to share it with people that I realize. And I think my thing is, hey, look, I know I talk way too much about this topic. Where else can a guy make a living who just tells stories? So that's one of the things that I am really, really trying to work on. The other thing that I've realized too is during this whole journey and process, uh, especially being in the FBI, uh, I got addicted to achievement more than fulfillment. And everything was like, okay, I'm going to go out and get more certifications. You know, I studied Taekwondo. Okay, I'm going to move up this level over here. Oh, okay. I'm going to break the four minute, my four minute mile. I'm going to get these speaking engagements. I'm going to get to do this. But what did I learn in the process? You know, and I would always say I'm living a passion project type of life because I get paid to do what I love to do. But now looking at that, and this is what drives me now. And when it, something drives you and it's an obsession to become can become healthy or unhealthy. Like I need to figure more things out to help people because it just kills me, you know, because I know people who've personally been victimized by cybercrime. I get calls from people to this day and you, you have, and it was the same thing with being an FBI agent. If you took it too seriously, you can work 24 hours, seven days a week. And when you do that, it's the same thing with your business executives that we spoke about. You get destroyed. I mean, the divorce rate is so high in law enforcement. Suicide is so high in law enforcement. But then if you kind of throttle it back and you go the other way, you're doing a complete disservice to the community. So to me, it's, 
and now being retired from the FBI and being busier than ever, I have more time. So I'm taking my kids to the gym every single day. I'm spending more time with my wife. Don't ask her how that's going because it's a completely different story. But those are the two things that I'm really trying to become a better listener because let's think about it. We've all had bosses in our lives who would go over and go, this is what you need to do. Wait, boss, you didn't even listen to me. Luckily, I don't have employees or anything. So, And also the same thing about finding that balance between the achievement and the fulfillment. And now I find it's more about, you know, the contribution side. And I, I like to call it just enjoying the joy in the journey. And that's not as easy. It, it sounds simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love that statement, but mm-hmm. you know, how often just think about this? Are we in our head? Are we just focusing on, okay, what's the next move? How do we do this? Is this going to happen instead of just. Yeah. You made a really good point that I I'd love to just add a little bit to. And I used to be a disability case manager and I did have first responders on my caseload. And I think what we fail to recognize as citizens is not only is the job stressful, but the level of hypervigilance that is required to be a first responder, whether you're in the FBI, a police, a fireman, uh, a nurse in a critical care unit, uh, a paramedic, you don't finish your shift and come home and easily decompress because of what you witness and observe. And it's all of those visions that turn into a little bit of cognitive trauma that, that take time to go through. So it's just, they make the, the role look easy, but people don't know kind of the, the things going behind the scenes. So it's such a valid point that you said, and I think we're all a work in progress And I think being imperfect is part of being heart centered and we can't have all of the traits and qualities that we need all the time. We have to be humble and continue to evolve. And I think every day we all work on being more active in our listening. I don't think it's something we do easily. I think we take it for granted and it's probably one of the the biggest things that we talk about on the podcast. So it was neat to hear your vantage point from that. And you talked about your, go ahead. Not even in cybercrime, you know, I've worked with a lot of my, uh, my career was so much easier than a majority of the FBI agents. And I'm so blessed and so humbled by it because I was the cyber guy and cybercrime was almost crime by appointment. Like we didn't get out of bed in the middle of the night because someone was hacking into it where my colleagues were dealing with bank robberies and kidnappings and extortion cases. But to me, the wall came for me during my career. I joined the FBI. And when I was younger, if you'd asked me to define the role of the FBI, it was easy there were bad people who did bad things to good people. And I worked with state and local cops and I put bad guys in jail. And I was up in Syracuse, New York, and I was part of the Canadian American law enforcement cooperative. And I made many, many trips to Kingston, Ontario and Ottawa and Toronto 
and hung out with those guys and found out what Molson triple X was and <laughs> everything like that and had a case with a guy who was over in Oakville. But when I got into cybercrime, I real and that played with my ego. That was my ego. What did, what'd you do for a living? I put bad guys in jail. And what a fun and exciting job. And then when I got into the world of cybercrime, I thought I was going to take those same skills that I used in doing criminal investigations and put the cyber criminals in jail. But I quickly realized that the cyber investigations were much more complicated. And I realized that they all had commonalities. So here I am. I'm a young guy. I'm putting bad guys in jail. It's playing into my ego. It's who I am as a person. And I want to be honest with you, you get addicted to it. It was kind of the rush because there were you did your part to build these complex cases to put bad guys in jail. I start working cybercrime. And what do I realize right away? When the bad guys steal from citizens, and it doesn't matter how big of a company or it's a senior citizen and your life savings is stolen from you, law enforcement is not getting your money back. And since cybercrime, there are no boundaries in cyberspace, it was very challenging to put the bad guys in jail because the bad guys were in China, they were in Russia, they were in Iran. And, and, and after a while, and how do you think this made me feel? I start my career as a young guy, full of testosterone, going out, doing these things, having a blast. And then it was Groundhog's Day, and I interviewed probably a 1,000 victims, and they have an expectation of the FBI. And I can't get their money back, and I can't put the bad guys in jail. So from like an emotional perspective, how do you think that made me feel? Helpless. Helpless. Because I couldn't help people. And then I realized, and we'll talk about this in a bit, and then I had that aha moment. I had that moment that changed it all for me, because I realized that a majority of what I dealt with could have been prevented. It could have been, pre- and I learned this when I was with the FBI. And there were guys who were super technical. I was not a super technical guy. And I always enjoyed giving presentations. And I, well, the day I realized that, I was like, it's my obligation to go out and teach people what I've learned and break it down into simple steps. Because if 90% of what I dealt with could have been prevented, if the bad, if the end users were just empowered with key pieces of information, then why don't we do it? And that's why today, and as I went through this big journey and I've had so many journeys, especially, you know what it's like when you're a public speaker, you're a professional speaker. How do you make your money? You go around the country and you speak. What happened in COVID-19? You didn't go anywhere. So I had to pivot and I had to figure that out and I had to grow. And then I realized that the cybercrime problem is getting worse, mm-hmm. but it could be prevented if we can just get people to change their mindset, almost like what you're doing with your coaching, because I see that's our commonality is you're changing mindsets. And I'm trying to do something which is so different than to try to change the individual's mindset that you don't have to be the next victim. You're you're disrupting cybercrime and I'm disrupting habits of thinking. There's some synergy there. Oh, absolutely. And we're parents. So We have kids. And my next question is, could you provide 
a little bit of advice to all the parents out there. What is the best way to monitor what our children are doing on the internet, especially now with COVID, because we're home. There's more time. There's homeschooling. And every child on this planet Earth is on some form of phone or tablet or PC or laptop. Just give us a little glimpse of maybe some strategies you do in your own home. And I understand that this is a a large bandwidth question because different ages, different strategies, but what's a couple strategies or tips you could share for all the parents out there? Well, here's what I'm going to do because it's going to be drinking out of a fire hose. I'm going to give your listeners who contact with me specifically the chapter in my book about keeping kids safe and also keeping your parents safe. And I tell people, you should go out and buy my book just for those two chapters, because there's nothing more important. That's why I give those away, because I don't want to make money going over doing this. The whole concept with your children, I could write an entire book on that, because you made something that was kind of interesting. You said something. How do we, as parents, monitor our children? If you give your parent, your kids an iPhone, you better have sat down with them and you better have given it to them. Like being the, being my two boys who are 15 and 18, if I think that I have any idea what they're doing on the internet, uh-uh. Because here's the funny part about it. Like I'll see my son, my younger kid, on the phone all the time and chatting with people. And I look at what he does and I never see the phone ring and I never see him using chat. And he goes, dad, we don't do that. This is all on Snapchat. This is all on an app. Mm -hmm. And then I'll pull the app up with him. And all of a sudden I'll go, what are you doing? And we live in a large neighborhood next to us. And there is the screen map that pops up that shows where every single one of his friends is located. Now, I'm okay. I got a 15-year-old who's 5'11", you know, (laughs) like being my kid was kind of, you were educated at the youngest age, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if I had daughters. Do I want to know where every one of my kids are? And that's the challenge because in the old days, we would worry about child predators Mm -hmm. hurting our children. And I got stories like you would not believe on that. Now it's coming up to the fact about the cyber bullying. I just, one of my best friend's son committed suicide at 15 years old because he had a bad day. He was suffering from depression. He had a very bad day and these kids were tormenting him online. And one of the kids said to him, well, why don't you just kill yourself? And he shot himself in front of the dad and the dad was, had such great rules in place. I used to, I looked up to this guy on how much he was with his kids and how he limited their technology use compared to my kids. And also kids are taking pictures of themselves. They're sending it online. The threat keeps evolving and the threat keeps changing. And what are we doing? We're giving this technology to our children. We're giving this technology to our elderly parents 
just recently during the middle of the pandemic, I had another good friend of mine. All of a sudden, her parents got an email that looked like it came from Amazon. And it said that your Amazon account is about to be shut down. What you need to do is run to Walmart right now and buy $200 worth of Amazon gift cards and reload them into your account. So they took their health at risk. They ran out and they did it and they were ripped off. And that's why, to me, it's so important to get this information out. Because if you're the victim of cybercrime or identity theft, which I talk about in my book, you're going to be okay. I know it's, I know it hurts, but if something happens to your kids or something happens to your elderly parents, we can't afford that. And I'm only going to give it to people on one condition. They need to read it and then they need to share it with their kids and they need to share it with their parents. Yeah, it's two, it's two populations for sure. And I remember having a gentleman on my caseload that sustained a traumatic brain injury from a car accident. And it was similar to the scenario you just provided. And he spent $40,000 on those gift cards. Yeah, we see it to this day. And it's also real estate. And and these are some of the things that I talk about in the book is romance scams. Mm -hmm. And talking about real estate ripoffs and shopping safely online. I, I bank online, I shop online. And that's why it's so important for people to be armed with key pieces of information. And that's what I've been struggling with and working with because I sold a lot of books. But I have a lot of good books on my bookshelf that, you know, I have great books on active listening. I've taken courses on active listening. I should be the greatest active listener that ever lived, but I'm not. No, but you're, you're human. You're, you're allowed. Yeah, I I, I, but, but here's the thing. I need, and that's why I'm, I'm building framework and I'm not ready yet. And because I would get hired all the time and companies would say to me, Scott, can you go over and give us your best hour talk on cybersecurity? And I was getting hired by big companies. And I would say, look, I need a little more time than an hour Mm -hmm. because I can't give you a PhD in information security in an hour. And I'm like, look, I'm not going to charge you anymore. I mean, pay me a great rate. Oh, no, we just want an hour. You take it or leave it. I'm like, you know, being a former government guy, I haven't realized that you're supposed to do, you're supposed to get as paid as much money for the least amount of work. So that mm-hmm. concept wasn't clicking with me. And that's why I'm trying to build courses. And I'm trying to sit here and get courses into the hands of everybody to be able to do it in video format. I'm still trying to figure that out because I can sit here now. And, and, and that's another thing. It's taking that imperfect action and being able to use the same setup that I have right now and going through, okay, people, these are the stories because stories change behavior. Mm-hmm. And if That's, I sit absolutely. here and I go over and I can explain this and then I can say to people, look, if you want to avoid the victimization, you need to do this. If I just tell you right now, Hey Deb, thanks for having me on. Email is the number one attack vector. Don't use the same password twice. Uh, what I talk about, everybody knows. Yeah, but, but they don't put it into practice. It's changing the mindset. It's the mm-hmm. same thing with like losing weight. I've been trying to take off the same 15 pounds for the past 30 years. I know what I need to do. 
but how do we change that mindset? Absolutely. The last leadership question that I have, I was thinking about the executives and C-suite leaders that I work with around the globe. And my question is, how can executives conduct business globally? And let's use COVID as an example, because they're not traveling and, and feel safe doing so in foreign countries because we do have such a change going on with the pandemic. So you're talking more about the remote workers? How or, or well, we're all remote, right? Nobody's yeah, nobody's really traveling right now. So I've had mm-hmm. executives be concerned about that. And then and then it was funny because I thought, well, when I'm interviewing Scott, I'm I'm gonna kind of get his vantage point on this. What's the difference not traveling versus sitting in their home office? There's still there's still the agility of it being remote, whether sure, you're absolutely. whether you're physically there or you're you're there, you know, across the the gateway of the internet. Perfect. No, that that, that is that is a great question. And let me just kind of walk you through this very, very simple framework that I've kind of said that okay, here's what you need to do. First of all, we need to identify what is our mission critical stuff. That's a New York term. Stuff. What do you have to keep safe? So think about this from your home point of view. What do you have at home that if the bad guys would get into would destroy your life? So Deb, give me a couple of examples. What would the bad guys steal of yours that would destroy your life? Financial information. Yeah, it's one. I guess banking would fall under that. Uh Uh-huh. What about social media? What if the bad guys would get into your social media and send out an email to all of your trusted contacts and say, hey, I just want to let you know, I was able to land an interview with Dr. Phil. Uh, Click on this link. What are your your trusted people going to do? They're going to do that. So you got to come up with a list of what is your mission critical platforms. And this is part of the framework that I'm developing because I didn't even cover this in the book on identifying your stuff. Now let's think about your stuff at work. What do you have? Now, besides your data and your intellectual property, you have your email. Bad guys get into your email. They're going to do the business email compromise, which I talk about in the book, which is about sending emails from the HR director to all the employees or to the CEO, to the to the COO, your email, number one. What about your HR platform? What about that? Bad guys get in, they download all the information. Now they steal all your employees' information. What about your accounting and financial software, your QuickBooks, your payroll account? Okay, again, very, very important information. What about at home? Let's go back to your ring doorbell. So you need to identify, and this is the homework for your executives and everyone, what is your mission critical stuff that you need to protect? That's your first step. The second one is we have to make sure we're not using the same password for multiple platforms. Mm -hmm. Just the other day, a list of 3.5 billion passwords was released. I mean, we've seen them released from the Yahoo breach. And what do all the companies tell us to do? 
change our username and password. Mm -hmm. However, 60 to 70% of the population is still using the same password for multiple platforms. So I had an investigation once where I met with this woman, bad guys came in, destroyed her company, locked her out of her website, got into her financial software, did everything. And why was that? She used the same password for every single platform. So we need to make sure that we are not using the same password. Then we have to go over and create separate passwords for our mission critical platforms. Mm -hmm. And a good password for your personal platform should be at least 12 characters in length. 15 is better. And I have a system, and there's a video on the internet that I have, where you're going to use passphrases, and you're going to put a special symbol and a number in the front, and you're going to put it in the back. And an example could be for your most important mission-critical accounts, my favorite vacation destination is St. Martin. And what would I do? Take the first letter of each word and put it in. And now I have a really long phrase. And what are we going to do with those phrases? We're going to write them down. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to write down that phrase. And then even if you do all of that, the bad guys still can steal your information. And that's why, and this is probably the most important thing, you need to put two-factor authentication on every single one of your platforms. Mm -hmm. If you are not using two-factor, and I want everyone here to start with their email, if you are not using two-factor authentication, the bad guys are going to steal your stuff. It is that simple. If you think it's a pain, Sorry, but you need to do that. And even if you do that, Deb, even if you go through these steps, you're still going to get an email from somebody you know and somebody you trust who hasn't done those things. Mm -hmm. And I have laid all that out into a very, very simple framework that, you know, at the end, I'm going to give everyone here my email address and I'm going to give you the two chapters in my book and I'm going to give you that framework. If you take nothing else and you do nothing else, just implement that in your life. And I promise you, you're going to reduce your risk of becoming the next victim. That's great advice. Okay. I'm going to switch gears to my fab four, just four rapid fire questions. We want to know what's on the top of that cyber mine of yours. First question, tell us something we don't know about you. I'm an open book. I think everybody knows just about everything about me. I wear my, I wear my bad habits uh, on my sleeve. I think uh, what you don't know about me is, oh, I'm trying to come up with, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to come up with this. I mean, I think even in my whole entire career, everyone always said, I do have this devil may care attitude. I would always be the guy who looked like he really didn't care and be like, hey, the one with the six pack of beer and the Frisbee and the other thing. And I, one of my friends would always make fun of me and say my response to everything was, eh, but I really do care. And, I, and secretly, I work everybody under the table. There are people that are a lot smarter than me. And really, that, that's the whole thing is I don't feel that I was gifted. I feel that I was never, ever a good writer. I had it to work. I have to work a lot harder to do anything than anyone else does. And I tell this to my kids all the time. Don't give up. 
don't give up because to me secretly I'm sitting here and obsessing about all these little details and putting those into place. And as everyone says, Oh, you're so laid back. You, how do you back so mellow? It's because I freak out internally inside. I love it. That's authentic. Okay. This question I have to ask, what does an FBI agent, what is your favorite TV crime show? You got it. You got to tell. Uh, you know, I watched one of the FBI shows when I was in the FBI and I saw that there was a agent who had to go to a crime scene and they picked her up in a helicopter and I couldn't get authorization from my office to change the battery. (laughs) So from that point of view, I would say that was it. Uh, a couple of shows that I really loved when it went as far as crime and policing, uh, The Wire, which was on HBO. Unbelievable, amazing show. There's a show from 1988. It's on Hulu called Wise Guy. Uh about an undercover FBI agent, which I loved that show. And then there is one more called The Shield, which is a very, very dark show, which is on FX that talks about public corruption. And it was kind of almost like an anti-hero who was like a really bad cop who was ripping off drug dealers and killing people, but he was supporting you know, his son, his family, and his son had autism. So it, it, it kind of sucked me in and I hated it because it was like you, you know, it was kind of like when you watched uh, uh, The Sopranos and, you know, oh, it was like Tony Soprano, you hated him, but you loved him. Besides that, I don't want, that's it. I don't really, uh, anything else, any of these things come on. I can't deal with it because I look at the computers and everyone can pull things up. I couldn't get my computer to boot in the morning. I love it. That's awesome. So third question, how old were you when you had your first experience to technology and what was it? Okay. My first experience of technology, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I was walking distance from the Coney Island arcades, and I learned how to take quarters and make them last forever by playing a game called Dig Dug. All right. That was my thing. And I was addicted to that. And I would go by myself to the arcades and do that. My first piece of technology that was really sophisticated technology was the Timex Sinclair computer. Because my mother, who raised me a single mom, thought this would be a great idea since I played so many video games to get me this $89 computer that you plugged into the television set. And I couldn't get past page two of the instruction manual. (laughs) And it was just another worthless toy that obviously nothing happened. Great story though. And, you know, as a mom wondering if that kind of put the, the fire in your belly to, pursue and and look where it's taken you in your career so that 89 dollar computer kind of sparked an interest that's a beautiful story now my last question is where did you get the passion to write your book and what did you learn from the process where did i get 
I just knew there were stories that needed to get out. And I just, you know, I'm sure there's a bunch of English teachers that are here that are probably laughing. And I remember even telling a friend, you're going to write a book. Like, I mean, my writing was just atrocious. And it always was. I wrote in very short sentences. So I went out and I wanted to do this. And it was the beginning of the, uh, it was right when I retired and I was, you know, getting speaking engagements. And uh, I just ended up working with uh, my business partner at the time. And we were just thinking like, look, this will be great, but let's do it professional. Let's hire the best ghostwriter in the world to be able to do this. And I kind of did things wrong. You know, I wrote a 70,000 word manuscript that a very good friend of mine took the time and made it readable. And then we gave it to the ghostwriter and he wrote the Duck Dynasty books and he made it flow so beautifully. But he said to me, look, you don't understand the concept of a ghostwriter. The ghostwriter, you sit with the ghostwriter, he writes you the book. I wrote the book and I wrote a 70,000 word book. But, you know, when I got into this and I realized the amount of money and the expenses and I sat, I, I woke up one day and I said, I need to get my message out. You don't write a book to make money. Books don't make money. They add more credibility to you. Mm-hmm. But I realized I was about $50,000 in debt on the book. And I woke up and I went like this, what the heck did I do? It was like those inner voices in you were saying, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't write a book to make money, I didn't want to write a book to lose money. And I just said, look, I'll just pay this off as I speak. This is a business expense and all of a sudden. And then the next thing I knew, everything kind of opened up for me because I just realized that I had a story and the story needed to get out. And I paid off the book and it led me on to the fact that, look, I was able to get onto the Dr. Phil show and hopefully that'll open up even more doors. Well, and I found you on Dr. Phil. And I'm so glad that you did. This was a wonderful and call. Here and here we are. Yeah, it's been. I can't even believe it's being recorded. You know, I just feel like I'm having a great conversation with you. It's, uh, it's such a delight for me. And I normally end the show with a quote, but I wanted to ask you if there's a quote that has come across your path at any juncture in your career that has really stuck with you that you've engraved in your heart or maybe made a huge impact that you wanted to share with the listeners? Yes. If you put your passion in front of your profits, in front of profits, everything will work out. And I think, you know, Bob Berg's book, The Go-Giver, which I don't know if you read that was very, very influential. If you put the needs of other people in front of you, things just happen to work out. Now I'm blessed. I have a very good pension that allowed me to take substantial risk. Yeah. Because you have a real, you know, I worked for the FBI for 30 years. So I was able to go, I don't care. Let's just go throw this against the wall and see if this sticks. Because at the end of the day, the pension takes care of me. And that gave me the courage to do what I did. And it was a lot of courage because I turned down some jobs and I've turned down some business opportunities because 
I'm driven to just get my point across. And hopefully everything will work out. Well, I love the, I talk about grit and tenacity and, and that comes under every entrepreneur's umbrella. And you don't succeed unless you fall. And I, I like to call it falling forward. And oh, I, love, the, I love that term. I hear it all the time. Get back up and you're going to get back with attentive listening and grit that comes to a deeper level. And I can't even tell you what a joy this has been. I didn't even have talked to an FBI agent on my bucket list, but I'm going to add it and then I'm going to tick it off today. Yeah. And uh, if I can give everyone my email. Address, Absolutely. Please do. That would be it. The simplest one, because I have another one, but this one's easier. It's S. Augenbaum, A-U-G-E-N-B-A-U-M at gmail.com. And in the subject line, just mention the show and I will send you, I'll go look through, I have a bunch of really good documents, but I'm going to send you the two digital chapters of my book. I'm going to send you the little crazy diagram that I drew about that framework and something else about two-factor authentication, some other things. And it's everything that you need really to start your journey. And it's a journey. You can't, security is not a cost. Security is an investment, just as like what you say with your, you know, heart-centric leadership. It's not something that you can just do once. It's really an investment, but it's more of an investment of your time. Absolutely. And we will put all of this information in the podcast episode description. And you have just made my Friday morning even more enjoyable. It was delightful to connect with you. I'm excited to have continued conversation. And let's just get this book out to the masses because I know it's going to help so many people. I thank you. Such a pleasure. And if you like the show, we'd love for you to give us a review and a rating. We'd love for you to follow Scott on all his social media platforms, and we'll give you all that information. And once again, this is Deb Crow. Thanks for joining me on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.